0: Our text for this morning's sermon is the entire book of Ruth, (laughs) and it would be delightful just to read the whole book together, but I will not do that. I'm just going to uh, read a few selected texts from beginning to end. First of all, uh, Ruth 1, 1 through 6. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Machlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return Home from there. Then, just going to the end of this chapter, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Then, to the end of chapter 2, verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother in law. Then, toward the end of chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when Ruth came to her mother in law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And then from chapter 4, starting in verse 16, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. Praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, I must admit, I like romantic comedies. My favorite is probably Princess Bride. (laughs) Um, But then you have to love movies like Notting Hill and uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, There was one on last night that um, we didn't watch, but I've seen it before, uh, two weeks' notice. Um, I think most of us, if we're honest and willing to admit it, like romantic comedies, Um, They're romantic because there's always romance built into them. And they're comedies not so much because they make us laugh. They're not like ha-ha comedies. They're called romantic comedies because in the end, everybody lives happily ever after. And so that combination of romance and everything working out and living happily ever after is what makes romantic comedy so appealing. Now, I know this might sound strange because we think of romantic comedies in the movies, not the Bible, but Ruth is a romantic comedy. It fits into that category. Certainly, at the heart of the story is the romance between Ruth and Boaz. And although it starts out on a very negative note, in the end, everybody what? Everybody lives happily ever after. Well, I'm going to start a series on the book of Ruth. But when I'm taking a trip, especially to some place that I've never been before, I always like to get a map out so I have the big picture. I know where I'm going. A couple of weeks ago, my brother had a birthday. He lives in central Pennsylvania. He has a couple of retired partners who have moved to Manhattan. And for a good number of years, Tim has tried to get me to go to Manhattan uh, in order to spend a weekend with him and with his retired partners, walk around, whatever. And uh, it's just never worked out. So this past spring, um, he probably guilted me into going up and spending a weekend with him in Manhattan. What a wonderful time we had. One of the best parts of the trip was we had no agenda. Uh, We didn't have anything planned. We were just going to do whatever came next, and uh, and we just had a wonderful time together. Um, Not everybody has the privilege that I have. I have the privilege of having a brother who's also a best friend, and uh, we just share an awful lot in common. And interestingly enough, our friendship, which has always been good, has gotten even better over the last number of years As my father and mother have passed away and we've kind of, you know, risen to the patriarchs of the family, even though we're very, very, very young uh, (laughs) for reaching that status, we just had a wonderful wonderful time uh, together. But before I went, I took a look at the map of Manhattan. Uh, I wanted to be able to know where Central Park was and what is it that they call the east side and the west side and the upper east side. And where is Harlem after all? And where's Midtown and where's downtown and where's the financial district? And, and I, now after just one trip, one map, I, I can see the whole thing in my head. Um, that's what we want to do today. We're gonna, we want to look at the entire book of Ruth tracing the whole storyline. What is the overall story and what's the overall message? And then once we have that big picture over the next number of weeks, we'll take the story uh, part by part and be able to go into a little bit more detail. So for this morning, just the big picture from the book of Ruth, which I would call From Emptiness to Fullness. Now, this book has four episodes. And uh, the ancients were aware of that. They divided the book into four chapters. And in broad strokes, each one of those chapters is a new episode. Uh, Often in a story, you can tell when a new episode begins because there's a new character that's introduced or it's at a new location. And while the Bible is fully the word of God, inspired, uh, infallible, uh, inerrant, it is God's eternal word. It's also human literature, and so it has a lot of the characteristics that human literature has. Like Jesus is fully divine and fully human, except he has no sin. The Bible is fully divine and fully human, except it has no error in it. And so don't be surprised as we see beautiful uh, literary characteristics in the Bible. After all, if it's God's word, you would expect it to be good literature, yes or no? Uh, And so let's take a look at these four episodes, just one at a time. And again, not going into great detail, but just to give us a feel for the whole story of Ruth uh, in all of its beauty, and to see what God has for us in terms of how to respond to this story. So first of all, Ruth chapter 1, the experience of emptiness. The story starts with Ruth being emptied of everything. Look at Ruth uh, chapter 1 again, the beginning verses that we read. You see, it starts with devastating loss. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Uh, Ancient Israelites were farmers. Their main crops were grain. Did you notice in the verses that I picked out how many times barley came up and how many times wheat came up? Well, the story starts with no rain. And since there's no rain, there's no grain. There's famine in the land. So severe was the famine that this man named Elimelech with his wife Naomi and their two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, left the land of promise and went to Moab in search of grain because they had lost their livelihood. They were the uh, analogs to homeless people in our society. Now when we think of the homeless, we often think, oh homeless, here's somebody who's made a bunch of bad decisions, here's somebody that maybe has no education, no marketable skills, somebody who's on drugs. There are a lot of successful people who have become homeless. Homeless because circumstances piled up that led to the loss of everything and they find themselves on the streets. Educated, marketable skills, previously successful, but just circumstances converged, devastation. The loss of all income, the loss of livelihood, the loss of personal property. And that's where this story starts, this devastating loss of of all of the financial underpinnings of life so that they had to leave home and go to another country, a foreign country, country of Moab, not a hospitable place. Moabites were people that Deuteronomy says shall never enter into the assembly of God. They go to Moab. But to add insult to injury, uh, after they had lived there for a while, Elimelech dies. And after his death, The two sons marry Moabite women, and then the two sons die as well. Not only loss of property, but also loss of life. It's hard for us to imagine what it was like for Naomi. And by the way, while while we call this the book of Ruth, it's really Naomi's story. Naomi's the main character. It's about Naomi's loss. As the story is getting started, Ruth's not even in the picture. Ruth is a key player. She's the heroine. Boaz is the hero. But the story is the story of Naomi. Probably the best thing that we could do would be to try to imagine in our culture, and this is hard to imagine, but imagine in our culture uh, a woman who, say, in her 70s, Her husband has died. Her male children has died. She has no social security. She has no 401K. She has no stream of income at all. She has no medical insurance. She has absolutely no supporting structure, no family, no friends, no church, nothing at all. And to boot, she's a foreigner. In a strange land, devastation, Naomi has been emptied of absolutely everything. And there are times in life when we experience loss, profound loss. Perhaps none of us have ever experienced loss to the extent that Naomi experienced loss. But we can all taste it, can't we? In one way or another, loss of friends, loss of family, loss of job, loss of income, loss of all the, the, the things of this world that provide us with security and with meaning and with some measure of happiness. The story starts with the experience of this profound emptying out of everything in Naomi's life. But there's at least, even in this darkness, a glimmer of hope at the very beginning of the story. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing grain. There's hope. There's this little tiny ray of light that shines into the darkness of Naomi's heart. She's lost absolutely everything, but there's this faint word from way back at this place that she used to call home years ago, that the Lord has come to the aid of his people and has provided them with grain there's hope that this emptiness that she has experienced might be replaced with a filling and so she sets out with her two daughters-in-laws ends up being just one who goes back with her but she starts out to return to to her homeland in the hope that she might somehow experience a filling of this emptiness. Now, notice that in verses 20 and 21 of this chapter, that even though she has this hope, it's only a small glimmer, and it certainly has not displaced her pain. When she gets back, she says, Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, pleasant. She says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Do you hear the accusatory tone in her voice? She says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because God's just made me bitter in my life's circumstance. I went away full, she says. But the Lord has brought me back, and there's our word, empty. Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She had enough hope to go back. She does have hope. But the fact that she has hope does not mean that the sting is gone, that the pain is gone, that the why, Lord, is gone. The perplexity uh, of trying to understand who God is and how God is working in her life, all of that is all there and very poignant. So there's hope, glimmer, small beam of light, and yet the pain is still there. But then notice the very end of the chapter, verse 22, which we read. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. By the way, we'll talk about that more later. The, the author, all, not always, but frequently calls her not just Ruth, but Ruth the Moabite. He doesn't want you to forget that she's a Moabite, and that's significant, but that's for another sermon. So Naomi returns... With Ruth the Moabite arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There's that note of hope again. Israel has a, a rainy season plowing and planting. This is kind of just like California. And then they have a dry season. And we're just now in California and in Israel entering into the dry season about mid-May. It's about when our air conditioners go on until October here in central Florida. Um, And the very first thing that they harvest is the barley. And so the author tells us that she comes home right at the best time because they're just starting the barley harvest, which means they're just starting the harvest season for the entire year, and that spells hope. And so chapter one, the experience of emptiness. Ruth is emptied of absolutely everything but her own life. But there are these small rays of hope. She's still in tremendous pain. She still has experienced She's, she is empty, uh, and yet with a glimmer of hope. Well, Ruth chapter 2, a foretaste of good things to come. When we, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's not enough to fill you if you're hungry, right? It's not intended to be. It's not intended to be a meal. It's intended to be a foretaste. It's intended to wet your appetite for the good things that are coming. And that's what, that's what Naomi experiences in chapter 2. Just a taste. It builds on that hope. And she gets a taste of some good things to come. I just want to show you two things out of this uh, chapter. Um, What an amazing coincidence. What an amazing coincidence. Let's go to the beginning of chapter 2. Naomi sends Ruth out to work in the field as a gleaner. There were regulations on how much could be gleaned. She's not working as a harvester. She's hoping to get enough leftovers to fill their bellies for a short while. And so she goes out, and now Ruth comes in, and and you you have to understand the, the courage of Ruth, because Ruth is a foreigner. Ruth is a female foreigner. Ruth is a female foreigner with no big brother, no husband to take care of her, protectionless, vulnerable. And she is going out to try to put together a little bit of a living by doing some gleaning in the fields. So, verse 3, When Ruth went out, she entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. Now, the NIV says, As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Um, If you have an ESV in front of you, it might say, she happened to. I like the old King James, which is not language that we all use. Um, Her hap, we don't even use the word hap. Hap is good fortune. Hap is uh, her circumstances. Uh, this same language, we, we could say her hap happened to her. The text is really saying, what an amazing coincidence. And, and this is what happens in romantic comedies, right? It, it looks really dark and wouldn't you believe what happened just now? Uh, sometime look at this uh, same word as it's used in 1 Samuel 6, 9. And there the uh, ESV says, it happened by coincidence. The NIV says, it happened to us by chance. One Jewish translation uh, says of Ruth 3, as luck would have it. Now, I know Presbyterians aren't supposed to use that four-letter word. But it really does work here. The, the, the text really draws out the, the coincidence. Now, coincidence is not a swear word either. We tend to, sh- to shy away from words like coincidence uh, in Presbyterian circles. But just think of coincidence as two things that coincide. Well, what's so, what's so bad about that? That's what happens. Wouldn't you know it? She just happens to land in the field of Boaz. He's family. And so this chapter, just this little foretaste, starts with an amazing coincidence. At the end of the chapter, we see a smiling providence. A smiling providence. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Boaz and Ruth connect with each other. Boaz gives her like the equivalent of a week's worth of grain to take home uh, to Naomi. And uh, when she comes home, Naomi tells her all about it, tells her the, the guy's name that I, I don't know who this guy is, I just happened to end up in his field, and this guy's named Boaz. And then Ruth says, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She said, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. That's for another time and another place. But a guardian redeemer is someone who is familially and socially and religiously obligated to take care of those in the family that cannot take care of wow wouldn't you know it i just happened to end up in boaz's field from one perspective it looks like luck it looks like a coincidence But by the end, Ruth is very aware of the fact that this was not sheer luck. This was not coincidence. This was a smiling providence of God. Now, the text is ambiguous when it says, "...the Lord bless him who has not forsaken his kindness." Is it Boaz who hasn't forsaken his kindness? Is it the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness? Commentators go different ways. I think it's kind of um, a moot point, because as we're going to see, the way God ends up showing his kindness to Naomi is through Boaz. But the focus of this text is on the Lord. Uh, the Lord, bless him, says Naomi, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living, that is to Naomi, and the dead, that is to Elimelech, Machlon, and Chilion. Now I say smiling providence because although I initially said, uh, as I was thinking of this, how providential, we tend to use the word providence erroneously from a theological point of view. When was the last time you heard of a bad automobile accident and somebody saying, wow, wasn't that providential? We don't, do we? The only way we use providence is with regard to good things that happen. We only say wasn't that providential when something good happens. But think about it. If we say wasn't that providential, the presumption is what? That something else is not. God's providence has been operating in Naomi's life from the beginning. Why was there a famine in the land? Why did Elimelech choose to go to Moab? Why was it that Elimelech died, that Machlon died, that Chilion died, that Orpah decided to stay, that Ruth? It's all God's providence, but that was all dark providence. Here she sees what the Puritans called a smiling providence. God, as the psalmist says, make your face smile on us and we will be saved. And so now Naomi is aware of this smiling providence of God. She doesn't know what's coming, but she can taste it. At first it was just a glimmer of hope. And now she is, she's returning. She's returning not only to uh, Israel, she's also returning to God. Now instead of, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, Now God has been at work in her heart and she's saying the Lord bless him. God has not stopped showing kindness to me, the living, and to the dead. She is on a return, but not just a return for for material life. A return to the fullness of spiritual life as well. The hidden hand of God and the kindness of God. Well, Ruth chapter 3. Ruth 2 and Ruth 3 have amazing parallels between them in terms of the structure of the story. As Ruth 2 gives Naomi a foretaste of the good things to come, Ruth 3 builds on that and it gives her a promise. Not just a foretaste, but a promise of good things to come. Now that starts with running a risk. In chapter 3, We have a really risky, uh, some people say risque, I don't think so. That's contrary to everything in the flow of the text, but certainly a very risky move on the part of Naomi. She comes up with a plan. She totally believes that it's in God's hands. She totally believes that she's got to make something happen here, and she sees an opportunity. So she says to Ruth, she says, put on your best clothes. She says, put on your best perfume. And at the, now we're in the, the, um, the uh, threshing. We're at the end of the grain harvest. And w- go to where Boaz is threshing. And after he's had something to eat and after he's had something to drink and his heart is happy and he lies down to sleep, find him and propose marriage to him. Now, that would be risky in our culture. You have to try to imagine how risky that is for this young, vulnerable, foreign woman to propose to one of the wealthiest and most outstanding and upright men in the community. But she does it. Ruth carries out the instructions of her mother-in-law. A lot of wonderful things in that scene. Uh, We'll look at the details later on. All I want to point out is that this was really a risky plan. Naomi devised it, and by faith, Ruth was willing to carry this plan out. Uh, It's kind of like the stock market, right? If you invest in something that has no risk... What are you going to get? There's not going to be a big return. And some of the biggest returns take the most risk. There's just that inverse ratio between risk and and reward. And she receives a huge reward because she has been willing to run the risk. In, In Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz says to her, I will do what you ask. I'll do what you ask. He's promising to marry her. Now, this is, this is just like romantic comedies in our day, right? The two don't start. There's no likelihood that these two are ever going to get together, right? But then through circumstances, they end up getting together. But what always happens in a comic, in a romantic comedy? Something. I don't care, something happens, and the two of them end up going apart. And you're disappointed just before they end up getting back together and living happily ever after. And so we're elated. Ruth proposes. Boaz says, I will. And uh, after that he says, oh, by the way, in our cultural context, we have a hierarchical structure, and I am one who is able to redeem you, marry you, get the family property back. I can do all of that. Unfortunately, I'm not first in line. There's somebody else who is first in line. I've got to go give him the opportunity to marry you, and you're saying, no, you've got to be kidding me. We want you two to end up together. Uh, and so Boaz says, I've got to go make sure that if he wants to, he can take care of his responsibility, um, marry you, redeem the property, uh, etc. In verse 13, Boaz says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So she, he has made this promise to her that they would live happily ever after. But then there's this other party who comes as a As a potential uh, suitor to be the fly in the ointment, so to speak, well, then we come to chapter four, the end of the story: The experience of fullness now what we 've seen is that Ruth was emptied of grain, and she starts to get grain back in larger and larger amounts throughout the story, so one half of her problem is being solved. But Ruth was also emptied of maleness in her life. She was emptied of husband. She was emptied of sons. And in that cultural context, that means no income, no retirement, no social security, no medical insurance, nothing, because the males provided all of that in that ancient context. So she was emptied of maleness, which means she was emptied of support. So the grain problem is being solved, but the lack of a male is still uh, an issue. In this chapter, uh, we have fullness, first of all, for Ruth at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, A son is born to Ruth. Uh, We'll look at that. You know, have you ever noticed how sometimes, whether you're reading a book or you're watching a movie, the, the, the author, the narrator will move things along very slowly. And then all of a sudden, boom, things will pick up. The pace goes very quickly. In one verse, we'll look at it later, in one verse, Ruth gets married, she has sexual relations, she has a child. At a minimum, nine months take place in that one verse. Boom, boom, rapid fire. Uh, but but the, uh, the, the point is that God is, Ruth, while she's the heroine, she also is empty. She has lost everything. She lost family. She gave up everything to go with her mother-in-law, and God is now filling her by filling her womb. And so now the son uh, is coming. Ruth has a son. Ruth is being filled up. There's fullness for Ruth. And But that fullness for Ruth is really fullness for Naomi. Go to chapter 4 and verse 17. Ruth four, seventeen. 17. Right in the previous verses, uh, notice verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Fast pace. Because the author's not so much interested in Ruth's relationship to this son as Naomi. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. It's Naomi who's taking care of the child. The women living there said, not, wow, Ruth has a son. They said, Naomi has a son. Because the story's about Naomi being emptied of grain, now she's full. Naomi emptied of husband and sons, and now she's being filled once again. Naomi has a son. And they called him Obed. Every one of the names in the book of Ruth is theologically significant. I've only mentioned one so far, Naomi, being shifted to Mara, But every name is significant. Lord willing, the next time I preach on the opening verses, we're going to look at the significance of all of those names, Elimelech, Machlon, Chilion, Orpah, Ruth, uh, how they all play into the story. Even the guy, the potential suitor, Even the fact that he doesn't have a name is theologically significant. Obed, servant. Avad means to serve, to take care of. Obed is a participle in Hebrew, the one who serves, the one who takes care of. They name this guy Obed because he's her fullness. She is holding her 401k that is making 20% a year now. She's going to be able to live off of the interest and never have to touch the principal. She's holding in her hands her medical insurance for the rest of her life. She has Medicare A and Medicare B and whatever other Medicare you want to have. She has it all because she's holding Obed in her arms. The kindness of God to take this woman who was so emptied of everything and in his own remarkable way to bring her from emptiness to fullness. Well, let me just say two things in conclusion. How do we respond to such a story as this? I just want to give you one word, open. Okay, let me give you two. Be open. Be open. Be open to the Lord's kindness in your life. Now, probably none of us are quite in Naomi's situation, but no doubt all of us are empty in one way or another at this point. This story should give you encouragement and hope to be open to the kindness of God showing up in your life sometimes in ways that you would have never imagined. Be open. Be open to the foreigner Ruth stepping in. Be open to coincidences. Be open to smiling providences. This book is telling you something of who your God is. He comes into your emptiness in the most remarkable, coincidental, uh, smiling, providential ways to begin to fill you once again. Be open to the kindness of God and be open to the Naomi's who might be around you in one way or another. Be open to the possibilities of you being someone's Ruth. You being someone's Boaz. You being that person that someone ends up saying, what a coincidence that you showed up today. I was just praying, and here you are. And so you might be on the receiving end. Needing God's kindness to show up in some remarkable way in your life right now. You might be on the giving end. You have what somebody needs tomorrow and you don't even know who they are or what they look like or what they need. But be open to being a channel of God's kindness into the lives of other people remembering the kindness and providence of God. In the words, for example, of Jesus in John 10, when he says, I have come so that you might have life. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, all things must work together for good. And maybe you're at the point right now of saying, the Lord has afflicted me. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because God has dealt bitterly with me. If that's how you feel, that's how you feel. No judgment. Express it. Tell God his shoulders are big enough. He can handle it. But listen, look for that little glimmer of hope, that word of promise, I have come that you might have life in all of its fullness. All things must work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose. May God have Ruth and Boaz show up in your lives if you need them. May God grant you grace to be Ruth's and Boaz's in the lives of other people because they surely need you. Let's pray.